Well, afternoon all. Beautiful, sunshiny day. I get spoiled out here in the desert. If it's not nice and sunshiny and bright and beautiful, it's frustrating in a kind of a, well, a small way. And then when it's still bright and shiny in July, I'm not as happy with that. So I guess as humans, we're not ever completely pleased much. But God did that. Uh, he made it so that life would be difficult up and down and back and forth and so on uh, for our learning and for our lesson learning. Anyway, here's some uh, prayer requests. Uh, Minerva is having some pretty serious difficulties. You've all met her. She was here for a bit and uh, has some liver problems. And uh, I think they said stage one. Is that what I, I think I got that out of what I heard? And says, ask that we pray for her in any case. And George's uh, blood sugar got down to a normal level, so he's not feeling good. <laughs> it's been so high for so long that uh, it's dropped almost to a, a normal level. And he's having dizzy spells and difficulties, so he's not here today. But uh, he certainly would appreciate our prayers because he doesn't like to miss services at all and hasn't missed much over the years. So he's, I think he said last week he'd only missed twice. Uh, I think that's what I got out of it. So this makes the third. But uh, let's remember George. And also, I wanted to remind of Dennis Schaefer. Uh, as you know, Libby died a few weeks ago. And there is that immediate shock and that immediate grief. Uh, and sometimes it takes time for the reality, I guess, to set in. I know it did with me when Marla died. And uh, then that that initial shock and disbelief and frustration and loneliness kind of changes over time, and it, uh, I think the loneliness sets in more, and it takes a long time to emotionally get past the loss of a mate, and especially they've been married, I think, plus or minus 60 years, and uh, he didn't say anything, but I just happened to think of his situation, and this might be a real good time to send up some words for Dennis and, and the loss as this, this thing sets in with him and he has to deal with it. That's the thing. So, from needing God's help and prayer and healing, from there we go to some praise toward God. In the special music, the chorale will sing how good and how pleasant for brethren to dwell in unity written by Ross Jetson. That was Loma Armstrong's favorite song. Uh, so here they are then to sing it.
Well, thank you for that. I misspoke a little bit. I said that was Loma Armstrong's favorite song. Actually, she died in 1967, and that was long before that was written. It wasn't her favorite song. It was her favorite verse in the Bible. Uh, that's what I was remembering. It's in the Psalms. and She had seen in her lifetime the beginnings in Oregon and the difficulties that people have and the difficulties that were in the church back and forth and on and off for decades. And uh, that particular song became very, very important to her because uh, unity is hard to come by. It just is hard to come by. Always has been. And in this life, always will be. We have to struggle to attain it. And uh, Ross did a very nice job of putting that psalm to music. It's a very important, very important thing. God's kingdom will be one of total unity. He and the Father, the Father and the Son are totally in agreement on everything. There's not a shadow of difference in their thinking and the way that they approach things and their attitudes. And they're in full agreement. Uh, they've had a long time to talk, to be together, to rule the angels and their throne and the universe. And uh, they just are one. And they want us to become one with them so that we think just like they think. And what a struggle that is. Uh, our human nature generally always wants to go that way. And God's Spirit is trying to pull us this way. And so we're always in conflict. You can't even get unity in your own mind and body entirely because the flesh pulls against the Spirit. So it's uh, being jerked back and forth day by day and hour by hour to try to maintain the attitude and approach that we should have and to get it all right. So, very, very important. Well, last week we talked mainly about uh, the keys to the kingdom, about Christ holding those and being very careful where he gives authority and how he gives authority and how he wants it to be used, and also what the keys to the kingdom of heaven are, and that is the word of God. Uh, his law, his precepts, everything about him, he has given us to open up to us the opportunity to be in his kingdom and live forever in it. And he gives those out sparingly right now to only a few. Only the ones he calls can have their minds opened to learn the truth and have the opportunity to follow it and be a part of the first fruits and the bride. So he's not handed that out very much. And we saw with Peter, even when he did hand him the keys, and he taught him for three and a half years what those keys were, uh, Peter, the first thing he did was try to do something that was against what God said. It was against the prophecies of what Christ would have to go through. He said, no, you're not going to go through that. Well, Peter meant well. And often we mean well, but if what we're thinking or saying does not fit this, 
then it's, as he told Peter, satanic as opposed to godly. So there's a very, very important thing to learn there. And we discussed that in pretty much detail. So today, I want to go back to Isaiah 36, where we left off the week before. Because chapters 36 through 39 are essentially a history of and a recounting of the problems of Worldwide Church of God. Uh, these events that we read here, and I took you back when we were talking about Shedna and Eliakim and all those back in chapter 22, uh, to Kings, because all these stories that we read in the prophecies, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, are actually recorded in the Kings and Chronicles, Judges, uh, of the times of ancient Israel, and then God put them in the prophecies, not just as a historical record, but in-time events. And that's what we have to grasp if we're to understand, what is Isaiah talking about here? Well, he's talking about not his day, although he was dealing with the real live King Hezekiah. He was dealing with Eliakim and, and Shebna and, and all of those people. And yet, God had commissioned him to write prophecies for the future. So, Isaiah could look back historically. He could look at what he was doing and see that that was a prophecy for the future. So when we read Isaiah, we have to be considering now uh, Hezekiah and Isaiah were only in their own minds dealing with the problem at hand. But even Genesis is a prophecy. Uh, there are prophecies in every book of the Bible because they, everything in there looks forward to a point in time when the kingdom of God is here. That's what the whole Bible is about, from Adam and Eve on down. So, there's prophecy everywhere. But when Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, and some others wrote, it was strictly about the end time and what is to come. So, I think it becomes clear here, as we go through these four chapters, that this is talking about the time, essentially, of Worldwide Church of God. A brief history of it and some of the elements of it that coincide very very closely with what happened in Hezekiah's day. Not the exact amounts of time, uh, not the exact attacks from the same people, but it's symbolic of people who would come, who would do the same things that those people back there were doing that Israel and Judah would be attacked and taken captive, that here in the end, the church would be going through the same things that physical Israel went there. Uh, because in Isaiah 40, then, it picks up where Herbert Armstrong left off, if you will. Uh, a time gap in between, but then there is a time when Isaiah 40 and on will be fulfilled in terms of the, end, the, the actual end-time work of the remnant and the witnesses. It's, it begins in chapter 40. 
And chapter 39 ends up showing just where Worldwide Church would be, would be uh, when it came to its end. So let's start in 36 and head there. Well, one thought, too, from chapter 34 and 35, it talks about a time of restoral when God is going to restore and the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the blind see, and so on. He's going to restore blessings and talks about the ransom of the eternal will return in verse 10 of 35 and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So he bounces forward <coughs> to the time of healing and restoral. And then he comes back to the historical record that leads up to Isaiah 35. So we have to get through 36, 7, 8, and 9, and then we start picking up the very beginnings of what will happen hereafter. So, with that in mind, uh, here's kind of an inset in that sense of worldwide. came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. Now, remember, we had gone through a few chapters back, and in Kings, how Hezekiah... Uh, had torn down a lot of idols, had torn down some altars to Baal and various gods, and he was essentially a righteous king. He did things far better than most of the kings of Israel did. And I think that I need to interject that thought in terms of Herbert Armstrong, because some people have put him down and not given him the credit that he deserves. Now, he wasn't perfect, and we'll see here Hezekiah was not either. No man has been. But he did a lot of good, and really, had he not been called of God to learn the truth about a lot of things in this book, you and I would not be here. Uh, there's no other place you can go to learn the things that we have learned that he learned and taught us. And we had them as basic doctrines by the time he died. We'd been keeping them, a lot of us, for a long, long time by then. And God used him to restore a great deal and to straighten out a lot of things that were pagan and wrong and Protestant and Catholic and Satanic and on and on it goes. Uh, he had brought us out of the woods, if you will, to a great degree. And we need to credit him for that. I do feel God does, and I think you'll see in the story of Hezekiah that God gives Hezekiah some credit. But things were not right, and Hezekiah had to deal with that. Now, he had started early in his reign to begin to deal with things that were not right within the country, within Israel. But then came outside trouble. And that's what we're getting to here in uh, Isaiah 36. Now, with Herbert Armstrong, he had learned a lot. He had put away a lot of idols. He'd gotten a lot of doctrine straightened out. He got us onto the Sabbath and the holy days and a lot of things that are correct. 
But then outsiders began to interfere. Uh, some from within, like we read about in Isaiah 22, where Eliakim was a faithful servant, but Shebna was not. He was there with the king, but he was a problem. And two of them were, but Eliakim was a faithful servant. So, there are parallels between there and then what happened in Worldwide. Uh, as the Assyrian, and I'm going to <coughs> look at the state of California as part of that. Because they came and attacked the church and tried to tell us what to do and how to do it and so on. <coughs> Just like we're starting to read right here. Here comes the king of Assyria against all the cities of Judah and took them. So he did overrun Judah. And then he approached Israel. King of Israel sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Now, wait a minute, he took, he's dealing with Judah here, not all Israel. Hezekiah is king over Judah, but he had taken the defense cities of Judah, or Judea, and then he came against the largest in the capital, Jerusalem. So he had done a lot of plundering around, and then he was going to take Hezekiah out and all of Judah out. So, Rabshakeh was the king of Assyria. So he came to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Now, I don't know exactly how this fits together, but in 22, remember, they had joined the upper pool with the lower pool, hadn't left them as they had been designed by God and by Solomon. It changed it. And here comes Rabshakeh to that spot. And what I'm wondering here is if what they had done in altering things had made it a weakness, a weak place that Rabshakeh could come to and attack first. Then came forth to him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. These were people who recorded events, knew what was going on, and Eliakim was uh, kind of in the position, I guess, of Secretary of State of the nation of Judah. So he was very high in the government. And Rebshekah said to them, Say you now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. Now in saying that, he expected them to fear and tremble and fall on their faces and plead for mercy. Uh, because people get built up in their minds how great they are, and Rabshakeh was extolling how great the king of Assyria was. People can do those things. But we'll see that compared to God, Rabshakeh isn't much, or wasn't much, and neither will the end-time Assyrian be, who is rising right now uh, before God. God will take care of it. So, this is the great king, 
not Jesus Christ, not God the Father. Those aren't the great kings. King of Assyria. At least that was what Rabshakeh thought. What confidence is there wherein you trust? I'm bringing you news of the great king, and you are trusting this God you worship. Who is he? I don't see him around. What, what are you talking about? Why would you fear him? I say, say you, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now, uh, now on whom do you trust that you rebel against me? I'm powerful. I have all kinds of armies here. I'm going to take over and plunder you. How are you going to stop it? Now, that's the way the state of California came against the church in 79, January. We were in the ministerial conference in Tucson because Mr. Armstrong had moved to Tucson uh, partly because of the attack, uh, partly because of his health. He'd had a heart attack. Uh, and there were troubles within the ministry and people like uh, Shebna who were rebelling against him. So he had moved to Tucson to protect things uh, financially and so on, and everybody started sending their tithes and offerings to Tucson instead of Pasadena. So Shebna is pointed out in chapter 22 as being someone who was not trustworthy. And there were people there with Worldwide like Stan Rader and Joseph Tkach who had come into the church and yet were not trustworthy and, in my view, were never converted in the first place. Raider was there as an Edomite and Tkach as an Edomite. I checked their background. Uh, there to destroy. They may not have even known it, just like it says of the king of Assyria back in Isaiah 10, is it, I think, that it's in his heart to cut off nations, not a few, but he doesn't know it. And I think that fairly well fits Vladimir Putin at the moment. Uh, he thinks he's a good person, a Christian man. Uh, he thinks he has the, the world's best favor in mind. And he's pushing against some of these satanic, weird, screwed-up things that are being promulgated in this country, uh, homosexuality and so on and so forth, and he's trying to keep those the true values. So he thinks well of himself, and a lot of people think well of him. And in some respects, I have respect for him and some of the things he's doing. And this war is not on him. It's on us. Has been all along. We're the ones pushing. He does not have bases surrounding America. We have bases surrounding Russia. Now, how did that happen? It's not his fault. It's our fault. <coughs> and we're the ones who are pushing Ukraine and had a change of government. We're the ones that are supplying them to fight Russia. We know all this. But here it is. <laughs> uh, this man thought his king was the great king. So he says, who's your God? And when the state of California came in, and I think Stan Rader was behind that, and had stirred up the state of California against the church, 
because he knew there was a lot of money involved, and he wanted the state of California to come in and take it over, and I'm supposing this, to turn it over to him as someone who could be in charge, I can't think of the, the term, the trustee, whatever it is, receiver, uh, that he could be the receiver and then he would have control over it all. I think that's from what I see, saw of him, knew of him, and I knew him somewhat. And nobody knew him too well because he wore dark glasses all the time and he didn't want to talk to anybody much. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it turned out that Mr. Armstrong didn't trust him either. And he told me personally in a meeting, uh, maybe, because I had said, there'll be somebody stand in the church and declare that he is God, that he needs to take over. And the first person that came to Mr. Armstrong's mind was Stan Rader. Even though at that time, in 1981, he was still defending Stan, but he told me as truthy I think that day, he says, maybe it's Stan. Uh, because he knew what was going on with Stan. Anyway, you had the nation of Assyria and the nation of Judah and Israel, but then we had the church with spiritual Israel, spiritual Judah, and we have enemies within who are supposed to be converted, and then we have the world without trying to take over like the state of California did. And they talk pretty much like Rabshakeh here. We're taking over this thing. There's been fraud. There's been all kinds of problems here. We're going to take over and straighten this church out and give it to a receiver and ultimately destroy it. That's what they had in mind. So that's what Rabshakeh is saying here. Oh, you trust, verse 6, in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, where if a, on a, if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. So he says, you can trust in the king of Egypt if you want, but he's nothing compared to the king of Assyria. You people can trust this God, whoever he is that you worship, but he's not the king of Assyria. So he's using these examples to try to undermine... Uh, the faith in God and in Hezekiah is what he's trying to do. And that's what Raider and Tkach and Satan and the state of California were trying to do to the church. Same thing. But if you say to me, we trust in the eternal our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you worship, you shall worship before this altar. Now, Hezekiah was taking away false gods, false altars, false um, places where they had the trees, the, the groves. But Rabshakeh didn't know the difference. So he, he just says, your gods, whatever they may be. Uh, Hezekiah is tearing down your gods. Well, no, he wasn't. He was trying to get people to worship the true God, but he was tearing down the false gods that were in the nation. And that's what Herbert Armstrong was trying to do, was get rid of the paganism in our worship and get back to the true God and true worship to him. 
So what did he do? He said, those crosses on these churches, these steeples, are not about God, they're about sex worship. That's what those crosses and those phalanxes are, those steeples on the churches. He started going through and showing the paganism of all the churches in America. And they're all that way. I mean, Washington Monument, 555 feet tall, is an occult number, and it's just a giant phallic symbol, sex worship. Uh, right there in our nation's capital, for all to see for miles away as they come in, the first thing you can see in Washington is that. So Mr. Armstrong pointed out that all this stuff's pagan. It isn't what the book says. We've got to follow the book. But Rabshakeh didn't know the difference. He didn't know who God was, and he knew about a lot of false gods. Okay, verse 8. Now therefore give pledges, I pray you, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you two thousand horses, if you be able on your part to set riders on them. So he said, pledge to me your allegiance, and we'll take care of you. We'll give you two thousand horses. And all you've got to do is find riders for them, and you can join our army, and we're going to conquer the rest of the world. And you can help us and be allies with us, and everything's going to go well for you. State of California says through their lawyers, if you'll get rid of Herbert Armstrong, if you'll get rid of these crazy doctrines you have and go back to mainstream, we'll take care of you. Right. It's like Washington, D.C. right now saying, we'll take care of you. We'll send you stimulus checks. We'll be sure that everything is taken care of so everything works good for you. And then someday we'll come around and say, that stimulus check was just a loan and you need to pay it back now, but you're still broke because you've been living on stimulus instead of working and saving your money. And you won't be able to, so they'll say, well, that's okay, you can work for us. And we'll give you a thousand little square thingies uh, a month so you can eat. But you have to follow what we say, or we cut back on those. And you only get 500. So they always have deceit in mind, and that's what's going on. This is what kind of went on in the church, but now it's starting to happen in the nation. And by the way, some Memphis cops beat a man to death. You may have heard of that already a couple of days ago, and they were starting some riots last night, but they didn't get very far. People riot better in July than they do in January. <laughs> it's cold out there. But the ironic thing of this, this was five black cops who killed a black man. And that wouldn't stir things up quite as badly. Uh, if it had been white cops, uh, the riots would have been a whole lot worse, I'm sure. So it's, it's breaking down very quickly. So pledge to me and everything will be good. We'll let you join our army. How then will you turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? So he says, don't go to somebody else for your protection and your help and your alliances. Come to me and everything will be fine because I'm going to rule the world. 
That's what China and Russia and the BRICS and so on are beginning to say. With Saudi Arabia, now they've joined up with them. And the American petrodollar is history. That was a real sea change when that happened. The effects will be felt month by month. Right now, there is a great shortage of diesel, apparently, and gasoline and jet fuel in eight states. Federal emergency called because they blew up a refinery in Colorado a few weeks ago, and now they're running short in uh, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, of fuels. Well, they may truck some in from somewhere else, but at least for the moment, there has been a shortage. So the king of Assyria is saying, we're going to take over. Join us. Ally with us. And Washington has said, okay, we'll do that. And they're working behind the scenes with the other powers, the Russians and the Chinese, to destroy this nation ahead of time so it's easy to come in and take over. That's our government. And I am, am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now there's a concocted lie. He didn't even know who the real God of Israel was. But he says, I went to your God and he told me to come here and destroy this. Satan is the God of this world and he's the God of the governments of this world. And he said, I am God and I will destroy you unless you obey me. You take my chip in your hand or your forehead or you won't eat. You will worship me or else you will die. Pretty much the same thing then that is happening right now. This speech could have been said at the, uh, the meetings in Davos last week. It may have been. Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joah under Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray you, unto your servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and speak not to us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. So, these three men knew the Syrian language, and they wanted to keep this secret. What you're saying to us and how we respond to you, we don't want the people to know. Because there could be things here they don't like. So, that's why we had in the church those speaking behind the walls in private rooms uh, about what they planned to do to the church. Just as we have people in Washington in back rooms and closets deciding what they want to do with us, and they don't want the people to know everything they have planned. Although sometimes they tell us a little ahead of time because of their ego. Just as Rabshakeh is telling them what he's going to do and what they need to do, and they didn't, oh, don't let the people hear this. Well, those are the people who are going to be killed if this came to pass. And with these things going on in worldwide back then, some of the ministers had begun to rebel, and uh, they were quietly trying to take over, just like this. So the three then said, Speak, I pray. Oh, we already read that. Verse 12, I want. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and 
to you to speak these words? Has he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? We're going to kill them, and you're trying to keep them from hearing the truth about what we're going to do if you don't play ball with us. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language, did just the opposite of what the three asked him to do, and said, Hear you the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. So he repeats that. Don't you know who you're talking to here? Hello, boys and girls. The king of Assyria is the great king. Thus says the king of Assyria, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. And Jodakash got to the point where he said, you've been deceived by Herbert Armstrong, and we're going a better way. It would be better if you'd come and follow me back into Babylon or into Assyria uh, than to do what Herbert Armstrong set up. So there was a rebellion against the things you and I still believe. <clears throat> Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the eternal, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Syria. So he says, Don't go to Hezekiah and don't go to your God and say, He's going to save you, because it can't happen. The king of Assyria has this huge army back here, and your God doesn't mean nothing. And Satan and the New World Order are going to say the same thing. In fact, they're already beginning to say it. We are beginning to have divine guidance, this Rahabi, Dabi, whatever his name is, under Klaus Schwab. I can't even remember quite his name. Uh, not Hatari, but something like that. Kind of a Weasley-looking little Gentile. Uh, but he said recently that uh, they're taking divine nature on. We're going to become God. That, that's what he said. That's what we're reading here. 16. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and eat you every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree, and drink you every one the waters of his own cistern. If you'll follow my woke policies, America is going to be a wonderful place to live, and all people from all nations can come across our non-existent southern border from all peoples around the world, and they're all going to live in this nirvana land in America. How... Deceitful can you get? They know. Joe Biden knows that his handlers want to destroy America and the American people. But they get, make all these promises, like the state of California did, like Joe DeCotch did. One of his first promises <laughs> was, we're going to quit tithing, and I know that the income is going to increase and the work will prosper, and all things will get better. And the income dropped like a rock, and it didn't get all better. It got a whole lot worse real fast. And then he turned around and says, Oh, oh, I'm, we probably should start tithing again. Well, the cat was out of the bag by then. 
then a lot of people didn't start again. And things got worse and worse. And it's virtually gone today. So he says, Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. You know what? That's what the beast is going to promise us. If you just... You're having trouble. Your companies are laying people off and their jobs are going away and you can't buy houses and cars anymore and we're going to solve your problems and we'll make sure you get fed. You'll get everything you need. All you need is this little chip. Here, here, whatever they do. You just need this chip and you can buy food and you can get the things you need and we'll... We'll replenish that chip every month for you so you can buy and sell and you'll be in a land that you've not had. It'll be better for you. Then he says in verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? We've conquered lots of peoples. Have their gods helped them? No, we just smashed them. That's it. And we're going to do the same thing to you because your god's no better than these other gods. And that's what we're going to be told by the coming world government. Your god can't save you. That's Satan's attitude, you know. God can't save you. I'm going to take over the universe. He still has a plan to attack God, and this time he's going to win, he says. We know better. I don't believe he's going to win. But I'll tell you what, when this new world order takes hold, and they start oppressing people, and they start killing people by not just the hundreds of thousands, but by the millions and billions It's going to shake a lot of people. It's going to scare them. They're going to take that ship and say, yeah, you are God. We'll do this. You've taken on divine nature, and only you can take care of us, O great beast. The whole world will worship the beast, it says. The whole world, except a very, very few who know the true God. How well do you know the true God? Do you know him well enough? to withstand Satan and every government, power, and entity on earth. you got to believe that. You should accept death before you will bow before the new world order. Peter, James, Jude, all of them faced that. And all but John did die that way. They were martyrs for the kingdom of God. And they're spoken of very, very highly in Hebrews 11 and other places in the New Testament because they put God first, not the Romans. Here, it was the Assyrian. It doesn't matter what era we're talking about, whether it's Assyrians, Babylonians, or uh, Chinese, or the New World Order. It all stands for the same thing. He who is against God and he who is for God. And there are going to, be, going to be a very, very few who are for God. So what's it going to be? 
And that's the way the state of California put it to the church. You do it our way or we're going to destroy you. They just came in the front door and took over while we were in Tucson. All the ministers were gone except Joe DeCotch, as a, he was only a local elder at the time, was left behind to mind the store while everybody else was gone. And he locked the door and wouldn't let the state of California in. And that's when he began to rise to the top because Mr. Armstrong appreciated that he had stood up against the state of California and wouldn't open the doors. They got on them. They got them open and got in anyway. But he began to rise in respect and power under Mr. Armstrong, which eventually put him in a position to take over when Mr. Armstrong died. So people have ways of getting there, and Satan has ways of getting them there. So, your God can't deliver you. 19. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad, the gods of all these other countries? <laughs> we squashed them. Verse 21. But they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, Answer him not. There are places where God tells us, Don't answer. There are times to answer, but there are times, he says, don't answer. And here, they didn't answer. What are you going to tell it? You only got one or two answers. We'll either follow you, and it'll be your allies, or you can have us. And you didn't want to say either one of those, really. And to say, we'll trust the Lord God of Israel, um, wouldn't have helped the situation either. Just made Rabshak a matter. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, uh, and so on, and told Hezekiah uh, about it. And Hezekiah went, well, they came with their clothes rent. And it came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth. They always did that in times of great trouble. Rend your clothes, cover yourself with sackcloth and ashes. And this was a big threat. And the king of Assyria did have the kind of power to squash them. He did have that. That was the truth. Unless God intervened. So then Hezekiah sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos. So... He did the right thing. He went to God's prophet. And he said to him, Hezekiah says, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. Hezekiah had brought them out of paganism, destroyed their groves and their altars and their steeples and all that stuff. But yet they hadn't been able to truly turn to God and be blessed. And he uses this same term in another place later on in Isaiah about the church today and how we've worked at and worked at trying to be what we ought to be and yet all we've brought forth is wind. Can't birth Christ in ourselves. So that was a term that was used. 
It may be the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, is sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the eternal God has heard. Wherefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Now, Judah had been basically destroyed, but now they were coming against Jerusalem. That's why we had the fast of the tenth month recently, was the uh, siege that was started against Jerusalem. And the siege that was started in the church here. And the siege wound up with the church basically being destroyed by 1986-90. And now, we're looking upon it again with a new revival of the church and the remnant coming, as we'll say here in a little bit. And it too will be attacked. And there'll be war between the two witnesses and the beast and the false prophet and Satan. With God on one side, Satan running the other side. So what did Isaiah say? Pray. That's the thing to do. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Eternal, be not afraid of the words that you have heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now, you can read this in Isaiah 7 and 8. We've been back there many times, where he says, Don't fear the conspiracy here at the end, but fear me. We read too much about what's coming, and it's a fearful thing. And you can begin to have fear in your heart and mind. That's the wrong thing to have. We have to have total faith and trust in God that as these tough times get tougher, He will take care of us. That's all you need to be concerned about. Now, you can watch it coming, but you don't have to become so involved in it that it becomes a fearful thing. Become involved with God who can save you out of it is the key. That's the key. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And that happened. Uh, so, Rabshakeh returned, found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, and he... I don't want to read all of this necessarily. He heard say concerning Tirhakeh, King of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So don't listen to your God. <coughs> he can't save you. Message sent back again. We're going to hear that a lot. We're going to hear it a lot from this world, more and more. You heard what Assyria has done to all the lands, destroying them utterly, and you shall be delivered? Nah, ain't going to happen. Have the gods of the nations delivered them, which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the children of Eden, which were in uh, Telassar? You're going to go down. Now, you and I didn't believe that, did we? Back in Worldwide, back then. A lot of you don't even remember this history, not having been there. But I do, and some of you do. 
we were told it would be okay, we'd trust God and everything would be fine, and yet the state attacked us, and then Raider and Tkach attacked us in what we believe, and we went down. The church was destroyed. It happened. Why? Because we were laying a sin. We were self-righteous. We were spiritually lazy. We took the Sabbath for granted. A lot of people are starting to golf and watch TV and do all kinds of ungodly things on the Sabbath. And you have to respect God's Sabbath. You have to respect all His laws. You can't do your own thing. He says, think not your own thoughts. Think godly thoughts. But we sit around on the Sabbath and think about our own things, not God's things. Still a problem. So it wasn't anybody's fault but our own that the church was blown apart. He says, if you're this way, I will spew you out. And we were that way, and it happened. Anyway, these threats were made. And verse 15, Hezekiah prayed to the eternal saying. Hezekiah knew where to turn. This is good for him. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwell between the cherubims, you are the God, even you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Eternal, and hear. Open your eyes, O Eternal, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which has sent to reproach the living God. And they were really reproaching God, not Hezekiah. Uh, of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they have destroyed them. But we're not like them. We don't worship sticks and stones and so on. Now therefore, O eternal our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, even you only. <coughs> now take that verse and pull it forward to now in this coming confrontation between God and Satan, his little tiny remnant church, and the whole rest of mankind, and think of it in those terms, because that's what we're coming down to. There's one true God. And that's it. Well, that's a good prayer. Hezekiah hit the points. And didn't Ezekiel say over and over and over again, and they will know that I am the Eternal. And he uses several examples to show how he will show them he is the Eternal. And the two witnesses will go and tell them he's the Eternal, and they won't accept it. And they will finally kill them, and they'll say, he wasn't the Eternal. And then they'll rise up from the streets of Jerusalem and they'll say, oh, maybe he was, but it'll be too late. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the eternal God of Israel, You tell me about you and your God, I'll tell you about the God of Israel. Thus says the eternal God of Israel, Whereas you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Eternal has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, 
And that's ultimately to be, here at the end time, the small remnant church. Has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you and said, Oh, you're crazy. But they are going to take over the world. Just as they took over the church. Joseph Koch finally did after Mr. Armstrong died. And the world will take over the temple that we build and defile it and say they won. And for three and a half years, they're going to act like they won. And then they're going to find out they didn't. But God is in charge after all. In the meantime, we will despise the beast. We will not fear it. We will despise it. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you exalted your voice and lifted up your eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel? He says, all these other gods of these other nations, yeah, you destroy them. But you're not going to win against the living God of Israel. Better think that through. But they don't, and they won't. And Satan won't. You think Satan's going to repent and say, I was wrong, sorry, I'm going to worship you and obey you and hallow you from now forever, forgive me. Ain't going to happen. Didn't happen with this Assyrian either. So he went on and told them how they would be of small power and how they would go down. And he says in verse 30, This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. The second year that which springs of the same. And in the third year sow you and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereon. I don't know really... Uh, what this is saying to uh, either the king of Assyria or to his people, because he brings the remnant up, the people, right after that. And he says, And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah, those who leave the city and flee to the wilderness like Micah 4 tells us to do, after our king dies, which is Herbert Armstrong, up uh, above that in that chapter. Those who res- escape, shall again take root downward and shall bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Eternal of hosts, shall do this. So God says, yes, you're going down, the nation is going down, but a remnant will escape. Just like the church went down, but a remnant is going to return. So this is a prophecy of what's about to happen right now with the church of God within a very short while. Now, does this three years, uh, when does it start? What's it talking about? It doesn't say. But a a three-year period. And that is taken from the the cycle of the third tithe. So, it means, apparently, getting back in line with God's laws and becoming prosperous again. Because the church has not been, for 35 years now, prosperous. It has gone down, and it is going to return. So, the the tide cycle might just be a symbol of going down, going through trouble, and then coming back and being prosperous again, uh, it may not mean anything in terms of 
specific years. I don't know. <clears throat> but a remnant will come. And they'll escape. And God's going to be behind it. Remember, he says he will stir them in that guy. It'll be him that does it. Therefore, thus says the Eternal concerning the king of Israel, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way he came, the same shall he return. He'll defend this city. And then in the morning, a hundred, fourscore, and five thousand Assyrians died. A hundred eighty-five thousand dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. It came to pass, as he was worshipping of the house his God, that his son smote him with his own sword, or with the sword, and they escaped. So they made all these threats, and then God just wiped them out overnight, 185,000. Well... The state of California did not win against the church. They wound up losing, and Herbert Armstrong came back and took over again. So that's what happened with the church. Now we're going to end this story right here with Babylon taking them captive, which also occurred historically. And uh, what Tkach did as well in taking them back to Babylon. So this is a story that fits history, and it fits the history of the church, and what has happened, and then again, what is about to happen. I'm about out of time already. I meant to finish this. But I don't have time to do it properly. So let's finish it up next week, God willing, because there's some very, very clear parallels in chapters 38 and 39 with Worldwide Church of God and what happened there. And just as a thought ahead of time, if we can read this and we can see what was said and then what happened, we can know that God is in charge and He knows what He's doing and He can make His prophecies be fulfilled. And it doesn't matter what some Gentile king says, God will do it His way. And He can kill 185,000 people in one morning, just like that, to fulfill what He wants done. So I'll leave you with that thought.